Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is a creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here uh, this afternoon with a phenomenal, phenomenal individual uh, in our American history, and that individual is Captain Gail Harris, the first uh, female captain of the U.S. Navy. She has written her autobiography called A Woman's War. And it truly was a woman's war, and we're going to talk to her about all of the trials and tribulations of, as you know, being the first. Uh, how are you, my dear? Oh, I'm great, Philippe. Listen, uh, you know, uh, Chris Rock always uh, made the joke uh, when President Obama was running it, you know, it's not good to be the first at any damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you were the first and uh, went through uh, a lot to come to this uh, place and space uh, called your history. Uh, can you can you share with us where, where, where were you born and raised? How did this life, this wonderful life of uh, Neil Harris begin? Well, I was uh, born and raised in uh, New Jersey, but I think more importantly, my parents were born and raised in Alabama, and mm. after my dad got out of uh, the Army, uh, he had joined in the aftermath of World War II, and his mother was part of the great uh, Southern migration, you know, the, of the African Americans uh, during World War II moved north uh, where there were better jobs in the factories, mm. uh, you know, the industry supporting the war, and so I was born in New Jersey, but they raised me with the traditions of the South, the Southern uh, love of uh, God and love of family and a dedication to any project that you put your hand to. You know, the uh, African-Americans, uh, before they migrated, primarily were on farms. Mm -hmm. and, and so that gives you, I think, a better work ethic. Uh, and so my parents had that, and they drilled it into my uh, brother and sister and I as we were growing up. Now, is it true that um, uh, you, at one point your family couldn't eat until Friday or, or something to that uh, effect when your father got home because that was payday? That's true. You know, my uh, dad, uh, after he got out of the war, the best uh, job he'd been able to find was just loading and unloading trucks. And so he looked in, uh, he was working outside of a machine shop, and he looked in the window, and he uh, said to his coworker, who was another African-American, said, I... He said, I still have some of my GI Bill left. I think I'm going to go to school and learn how to do that. And his coworker said, oh, man, they're not going to let a black man work in there. And my dad ignored him, and he uh, went to school and he got hired, but he wasn't paid very well. Mm -hmm. And so we truly would. I didn't realize at the time why we had to wait to eat on Friday until my dad came home. Ate a lot of mine sandwiches during the week and uh, – Cheese and crackers, snacks, and things like that. 
you know, uh, soup from the can, uh, you know, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, my parents uh, really did the best they could. And it was funny, and a lot of people who question the government involvement in our life and they, you know, they say they shouldn't. Well, don't say that to anybody who was raised during the civil rights era, because once they started passing uh, some of the legislation during the civil rights era, uh, my dad was able to get a job and move his family out of the ghetto of Newark, New Jersey, mm-hmm. to suburbia. By the time my brother and I were in high school, so we'd have a better uh, chance uh, to get into college and, and uh, subsequently improve our life. Well, you know, there's something to be said, uh, uh, and I believe it's indicative of you and your family, and that is is that there was so much love there, you really didn't know that you were quote-unquote poor. No, we didn't. You know, and to this day, I still like to snack on cheese and crackers. (laughs) 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 Tell her you started on all of my ghetto snacks. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom was such an excellent... A uh, baker, you know, it's a whole lot cheaper if you can. Uh, she didn't bake bread. We lived not too far from a bakery, so she could get like you know day old bread, pretty cheap. But you know, she did a lot of baking, and so that stuff is it's much cheaper than if you go to a bakery and buy it. Absolutely. And, and so uh, I I thought we were eating great. Like I said, it was just Friday. There seemed to be some kind of issue. <laughs> Uh, there was an endearing story about how you uh, uh, developed the nickname Old Crooked Arm. How did that come about? Well, my dad, you know, it's so funny. He was uh, old-fashioned in many ways, but he raised my brother and I alike, and he was trying to teach both of us how to throw a baseball. And I just was awful. I'd be looking one way and, <laughs> to the best of my ability, throw it, and it would go the opposite way. And then he was trying to teach me how to catch fly balls. And then I, you know, I caught one right in the mouth instead of my glove. Oh my you know, goodness! My dad, my dad was laughing. Gail, that's why I gave you the glove. You're supposed to catch the ball with this. <laughs> and I'm sitting down with my face bleeding. <laughs> and so, no matter, even to this day, I, I cannot throw a, a ball <laughs> very well. <laughs> that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I grew up, and you know, you start working in the workplace, and they'd have office softball teams and things like that. Nobody wanted me on their team. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> God God had much bigger plans for you. There were there were balls that you threw that were a lot larger than, than a softball. <laughs> I guess he didn't want me to get sidetracked and think no. I could root off or something. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember so, one lady who reviewed my book saying she wondered how I made it through the military basic training since I didn't seem to be uh, very skilled athletically. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, we're going to talk about that. And and, and when did you realize that uh, there was something that happened to you? I think it was early in your in your childhood where you knew that you wanted to have a military life, particularly in the Navy. Well, I was a... Uh, it was the winter time, and my dad, you know, I tell this story to kids today, and they freak out. You know, we only had one TV set, so it was too cold to go outside and play that day. So my father, like I said, was old-fashioned in many respects. And, you know, my house, my TV, and I'm going to watch this movie. And so it was called Wing and a Prayer, and it was about the aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise, after the the uh, battle, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and before the attack on Midway, and before the big battle, uh, Don Amici, who played the, I didn't know what he was doing, he was a uh, Commander Harper, the air boss, 
mm-hmm. he got up and gave an intelligence briefing to the pilots, telling them where the Japanese naval forces were they needed to destroy. So I turned to my father and I said, Daddy, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And as I mentioned, my dad had been in the Army in the aftermath of World War II when it was still segregated, and he could have burst my bubble right then and there. And he could have told me that at the time, which was 1955, there were very few male uh, African-American officers in the Navy. And he could have also told me that there was a law that didn't change until 1994 that prohibited women from serving on ships that might go into combat. But he looked at me and said, this is America, and you can be whatever you want. Wow. And, And in 1973... 20 years before it became legal, I was the first woman assigned to a combat job, a combat squadron, as an intelligence officer, the first woman in naval history. And I look back on that, and Philippe, believe it or not, I really didn't think about this until I was writing the book, is that uh, I had a minister that said that God had a sense of humor. And my uh, father was born in Enterprise, Alabama, which was the name of the aircraft carrier for the movie, Mm. My mother was born in in Andalusia. She was a 12th child. But all of the rest of her brothers and sisters and her parents were born in Midway, Alabama. Mm. Enterprise in Midway, huh? Yep. And so I tell people when I give talks around the country that there are guideposts uh, to your heart's desire, whether it's career or any other goal. If you look, Mm -hmm. there are little signs of encouragement that God sends to give you hope and confidence as you do this journey that we all do during life. Absolutely amazing. You know, is it true that at the time you applied for the Navy, they were only accepting like one out of every five female applicants? Yep, that's true. Yeah, and uh, there were only, I think the total was something like, oh, maybe... 4,000 women in the Navy, it was it was a very small number. And the largest percentage were uh, nurses and working at administrative jobs. Mm. And and uh, I think there was only 400 women officers, not like I said, again, not counting the nor- nurses when I joined. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. Wow. Uh, talk to me about... Why you decided to? Well, when did the when did you make the decision to go into the intelligence community? Was that something in the beginning? Something you fell into? Well, uh, that was part of the uh, the childhood dream because Donna Michi in the movie was doing an intelligence briefing, mm-hmm. and so when I uh, decided to follow through on my dream and join the Navy, I, I told the recruiter I wanted to go into intelligence. And she told me that they were not uh, accepting women into the intelligence program. It was still uh, prohibited for women to go into that field. But things were changing. There was a remarkable man named Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, who was in charge of the Navy, the chief of naval operations. And he was encouraging uh, particularly African-Americans. African-American men, for the most part, were confined to jobs uh, working as messmen and stewards. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, you know, early 70s here mm-hmm. and you're thinking what in the early 70s this was still going on wow. and there were actually race riots on air, u.s aircraft carriers and really? admiral zoom yep admiral zoom said to um, minorities and women he said i know we're not perfect but i want you to join and help us make this better and so what the recruiter told me that there are so many changes going on 
that maybe the intelligence field would open up shortly. And sure enough, while I was uh, in the officer candidate school, it opened, and the intelligence school was a 20 weeks uh, pro training program that was done in Denver, Colorado. And uh, for my graduating class, there was one opening, and I was selected. And the program was so new that I was the fourth woman overall accepted to go into the program, and numbers two and three were still at, at the training, you know, when I showed up. Wow. So that's how new it was. So I joined. It's funny, the name of the movie was Wing and a Prayer, and I actually joined the Navy on the Wing and the Prayer in the hope that, true to his word, that Admiral Zumwalt would open up a lot of career fields that had been closed to both black males and, and uh, to females. That is amazing. Now, so here you are, uh, you're, you're accepted in uh, military school, and what was that experience like for you? Well, it, it was interesting in that it was uh, during the time of the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of incredible hostility, most people have forgotten, toward the military to the extent that if you were coming home from work and you wanted to stop and get a loaf of bread, you had to stop and think maybe you should go home and change your clothes first. That's wow, that hostility. bad. Yeah, that that bad. So uh, I had told my college roommate that I was joining the Navy. I hadn't really shared my dream with anybody other than my immediate family. Mm -hmm. I learned a long time ago that things that are that important to you, you need to be careful who you share with because they'll mm -hmm. try to discourage you. Amen. They'll try to tell you it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my, after my college roommate got over a shock, you know, it was kind of like she called up all our mutual friends and said, you hear about Gail? Last year was astrology. Now she said she's joined the Navy. And so she, after she got over the shock, she called me back, and she was working as a social worker, and one of the ladies she worked with uh, was joined the Navy, uh, named Trish. And so she got us together, and we drove up together uh, to, it was actually women's officer school. We were the last class where they had uh, women only. You know, after us, they put men and women in training together. And, but uh, between the two of us, we drove around that base. I'm not exaggerating. Three times, because we said, what kind of women join the military? We know we're normal, but what about these other women? Mm. And and that was the hardest part. So we decided to go in. And plus, my brother had joined the Army a few months early, and he had called up when he was doing his basic training in the Army, and he called my mother. He said, Mom, if I'm found dead, my drill sergeant did it. His name is Sergeant Snyder. Remember, Sergeant <laughs> Snyder killed me if I'm found dead. <laughs> and, you know, my my mother was freaking out, wanting to call a congressman. And my dad said, Lena, every guy thinks his drill sergeant is going to kill him. <laughs> so, I had, <laughs> so I had that as a background. So Trish and I got our courage up and said, well, we can always leave. They, you could leave at any point until the time you finished the school and raised your hand and took the oath. So we said, let's give this at least one day. And when we walked in, uh, we saw these ladies, they, you know, other candidates. They were standing at a table. They said, welcome, Gail, Trish, we're so happy to see you. said, did anybody tell you that, you know, your uniforms are going to have to be tailor-made, so you're going to have to wear civilian clothes for maybe like the first month. Uh, but that's okay. And then on the weekends, as long as you don't have any duty, you're free to go wherever you want as long as you're back midnight on Sunday. And by the way, let me show you how to salute. This is how you salute. Now go over there, and Sue will give you some more information and tell you how to do an about face. 
And so Trish and I are looking at each other, and we're saying, oh, this isn't so bad. Right. And, and, it, and, and it really wasn't. You know, our physical fitness classes were, you know, you just had to keep moving for an hour. So we'd be just kind of standing in place, lifting up one leg and putting another leg out. Well, are you going to go out to dinner tonight? You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> funny when they brought in the women, you know, that were going to have to go through the class with the men. They didn't want us around. <laughs> we had classes on how to get in and out of a car without your skirt hitching up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How to eat, you know, how to get along with the wives of the guys that you work with and that, so that they knew that you were a lady and they didn't have to worry about their husband while they are at work. Are you kidding and, me? I'm not I'm not exaggerating. And one of the things that was really interesting, since they were bringing on the women and putting them through the same program, they experimented on us. One day they took us to, it was like a huge swimming pool, and they had these toy ships. They were scaled down, and you're supposed to give them commands, and they would respond, you know, so that you could learn ship handling. So I didn't know anything. My turn came up. All I knew was from watching those World War II movies. Left foot, full rudder. Right, full rudder. <laughs> and that's kind of what we did. And what was so funny, we somehow managed to do okay. And uh, there was some grizzled Navy chief that was in charge of it. He came over and he, sh- he shook each of our hands and said, Ladies, you all can come and play with the ships in my bathtub, whatever you want. You ladies did good. <laughs> And the reason for the way they used to train women was uh, your jobs were primarily administrative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they didn't really think they had to do more than teach you how to wear the uniform and teach you some naval history and mm-hmm. teach you Navy administrative, you know, how they held their records and, you know, that kind of stuff. No, and, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Gail. No, so I, I was going to say they did send – uh, one of they had eight women naval aviators. This is Admiral Zumwalt. They went all over the country to find eight women to put through the Navy's flying program, and four of the women were in my class, and uh, they were all drop dead gorgeous, looked like models. And most of them, one of them already had like a thousand hours commercial flight time, and had a master's in something like aeronautical engineering, you know, from Purdue University. So these women already knew how to fly. They wanted to make sure that they were successful. Wow. What an amazing beginning. You received quite a bit of discrimination also um, in many forms uh, in the beginning uh, years, uh, well, of course, even throughout. But, you know, it, it kind of hit you uh, pretty early on. Uh, discrimination on race, discrimination on body image. It was, uh, uh, I believe, a time when you had to uh, weigh in or be sworn in. Share that story with me. Right. Uh, I was chosen, uh, you know, my idea, you know, like uh, when I got to the intelligence training school, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I wanted to know why uh, women couldn't go to aviation squadron. And they said, well, they explained the law to me. And so my roommate was in the Air Force, and the Air Force was sending women over to Vietnam in aviation squadron and combat squadrons as intelligence mm-hmm. officers. So I came back and said, why can't I go to a land-based aviation squadron in the Navy? I said, because then uh, at the time, and it still is, 
most Navy, Navy, Navy aviation squadrons will deploy aboard an aircraft carrier. That's why women couldn't go. So I said a land-based one, when they deploy overseas for operations, they deploy to another land base. Therefore, the, the law wouldn't apply. And I tell the story to tell people that one person can change. With that simple question, I changed a 200-year policy. Wow. And, it, and the Navy did decide to make me the test case. But the problem was that the squadron they sent me to wanted the honor of having the first woman, but they didn't expect me to do anything. They didn't know what an intelligence officer did, but whatever it was, I wasn't qualified. And the biggest change that I had to adjust to was being a girl had never been an issue. All, all my years through school and graduate school, being a woman had not been an issue. So I, I couldn't wrap my mind why all of a sudden when I went out into the workplace that solely because I was a woman that, that most people thought I was incompetent. Mm. And then the weight thing happened. Uh, I had uh, I got Graves' disease, which is an overactive thyroid. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember I was uh, I told my mom, I didn't know what was going on. I had all these symptoms. And the most interesting one was I was hungry all the time. And I, I'd eat a huge breakfast, a huge lunch, and a huge dinner, and I was still losing weight. And, uh, you know, my hair was falling out and all kinds of stuff. I oh was nearly God. fainting at work. So when they finally diagnosed me, I called up my mother and told her, because obviously my parents had been concerned. And I told my mother what it was, and she said, uh, do they have to fix it right away because you could stand to lose a few more pounds? <laughs> and I said, Mommy, I said, they tell me I can die of heart failure if they don't fix it. She said, oh, are you sure? <laughs> I never let her forget this. Oh, Mom. <laughs> so they uh, removed 90% of my thyroid, and then I developed the other problem, an underactive thyroid. Now, mm. typically when you have uh, your thyroid removed, they'll give you immediately after surgery thyroid supplement medicine. And I was not given that for thir until 13 years after that surgery. So in the yep. meantime, I would just gain huge amount of weight. And, you know, the military has the weight standards. They'll weigh you twice a year. If you're overweight, they'll throw you out. And I just had – well, I tell people, I think some don't believe me, that the worst form of discrimination I, I faced during my career was over the weight issue. You know, here's the Navy, on the one hand, threatening to throw me out. When it comes out, the reality is it was their poor medical treatment that caused me to have that problem in the first place. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. years later, I went to uh, a specialist at the University of Nebraska Medical School, and she was appalled. She said, can you sue? And I said, no, I can't sue the military for medical malpractice. And she said, it's only a miracle that I'm still alive. Wow. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so that was the biggest problem. You know, I'd have people, you know, that would think I was a disgrace to the uniform and shouldn't be allowed to walk around in public or to have uh, jobs that put me in the public eye because I was unfit. And, uh, you know, I exercised like crazy, and I dropped down to just 500 calories a day, and I'd do a three-mile run six times a week, and, do an aerobics class, a high impact, five times a week. And then I took weight training three times a week, and the best I could do was chubby. Wow. Your father gave you some great advice, though. He says you can do something or nothing. What right. He said two things you can do about a problem, something or nothing. So what, what, what did you do? 
Well, it, it was so funny. It was more woo-woo. I just happened to one day to see a commercial that Oprah was going to do a show about what she thought was the most effective way to fight weight gain. And I took off from work early, and some of my female coworkers were cheering me on and said, take notes for us, too. And that's where she talked about the benefits of a low-fat diet and working with a trainer to get a physical fitness program that is designed just for you because everybody's mm-hmm. different, as you know, because you've done a, a lot of work in the fitness training area yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you know that people are not cookie cutters when you mm-hmm. design a program for them. And so uh, basically uh, I got I joined the, the best fitness club in town and got a trainer, and she designed a program for me that involved a lot of cross-training. And I sat down with a nutritionist also at the health club, and she believed me. You know, the biggest problem people who are fighting weight often deal with are the medical community. If they don't know you, they they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. You go in and you say, I'm only eating this, but I'm still gaining weight or I have an inability to lose. Mm-hmm. I'd say if somebody has that attitude towards you, my advice is go get another medical professional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Keep going until you find somebody who believes you and will work with you. So the nutritionist uh, sat down and helped me devise a a low-fat diet, and she said one day a week, and I always chose it as Friday, you can eat whatever you want, (laughs) you know, within reason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And pretty much that's kind of what I I do now still. And that allowed me, uh, and adding the weight training under what a professional uh, athlete, you know, trainer, uh, I didn't. I was still over, but the Navy had this option of body fat, and I was able to pass the body fat option. And the only thing, uh, Amy Johnson was, uh, I was one of her first clients. She had just graduated from school, mm-hmm. and I told her, I didn't know that women could do, like, weight training. And I said, I, I don't want to look like a man. I said, Amy, if you make me look like a man, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then one time she had me and I had that, you know, that thing where you got the weights on your back and you're doing the squats. Mm-hmm. And Amy's going, Gail, look at the definition in your legs. And I looked in the mirror I said, get this thing off of me so I can kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Time for you to <laughs> die. <laughs> so we can back, we backed off on some of the leg exercises. I said, I do not want to look like this. <laughs> oh. Now, at this point, you were a watch officer, is that correct? Well, that was uh, the second job that I had after I left the aviation squadron was working as a watch officer, which is basically the civilian equivalent of working in a newsroom. Ah, okay, okay. So all of this was still part of uh, uh, learning the process of intelligence. You became a great news writer, I believe, as a result of that. Uh, Exactly. You know, I started out, you know, I didn't know how to write. Like so many people that graduate from college, I didn't know how to write. And, you know, in college they teach you how to write some antiquated style that you never (laughs) use unless you're going to go on to be a college professor or write articles for journals. Uh, It's been my experience that most people in the government and in industry, write more in the style of journalist. So I always tell young people that at some point, if, if they want to learn how to write, to take a journalism course. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I was working for uh, basically the seven, the Navy Seven Fleet staff uh, newsroom, and the Navy Seven Fleet had the responsibility, the geographic responsibility for the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So every day you had to write, like, newspaper-style articles and flash news reports. 
we were primarily, this is the height of the Cold War, so we were primarily monitoring the movements of the Soviet and the Chinese military forces as well as the North Koreans. Mm-hmm. And then anybody else uh, that there might be a potential U.S. interest involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> you know, we know that you've had many challenges uh, and discriminations in the, in the military, uh, but you also had... <clears throat> some great mentors and and I believe one was uh was it Reverend Helen? Yeah, she was a, yeah, Reverend Helen Street. Helen Street. When, yeah. When I was in Hawaii, uh I joined her church and uh it was a non-denominational church that functioned best I guess the best way to describe it is practical Christianity. It was very Christian based, mm-hmm. but it was more about the so what function of religion and what place was it in your life and that religion wasn't something you just did on Sunday mm-hmm. that God was something that God so loved us that he even cared whether you got a parking space mm-hmm. that's what she drilled into us and it wasn't one of these you know a lot of people criticize oh this is one of those prosperity things getting rich no it was basically how to get through the day and um, how to live your life with God's grace helping you Mm-hmm. Well, practical Christianity, they're, they're in the sense. Yeah, so how did you, one of the one of the things that you learned from, from Reverend Helen was, was the power of persistence. Because, I mean, you really had to push through a lot and really compartmentalize a lot of the things that were happening to you to continue to do your work at such a high-functioning level with the stress that came from that uh, and the repercussions. I believe you were saying that uh, if you uh, messed up a certain level of intelligence, they would either court-martial you or put you in jail. Oh, yeah, they they will. And, uh, you know, you have to, like in a lot of assignments, you know, you're responsible for, uh, you know, you might have a library of classified material that you're over. Mm-hmm. If you that stuff is missing, they'll throw you in jail. Uh, Court martial you first, obviously. So the responsibilities were uh, tremendous, plus the hostility. The way it usually worked for me is that no matter what nice things people said about me, once I arrived, the majority of people seemed to think I was just some kind of civil rights statement being forced on them. So everybody, when you show up on a job, you, you have to prove yourself. But for me uh, and other minorities, women or, you know, uh, black men, Hispanic men, you you just had to work harder and longer. And people say, well, how do you know? I said, well, you just look at your peers and seeing how they're being treated and you compare yourself. Mm-hmm. You go, hmm, this person is new too and this isn't happening to them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's... That's why you have to have mentors because you call up and I had I called it the ain't it awful game and the way ain't it awful is played if you think something bad is happening and I did get this from Reverend Helen if you think something is bad is happening to you call up a mentor or a friend uh that you trust and for the first 10 minutes they have to listen to you whine and complain mm-hmm. and I said one of my mentors I I know when I called up in one of these things, she had the phone down and was reading and just pick it up, you know, every <laughs> couple of minutes, go, oh, poor baby. Oh, that's, that's awful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> then, I, then after the 10 minutes, 
they start to offer constructive criticism because the big thing is you want a solution to the problem. Uh, if I thought it was a problem with my being a woman, I'd call up a woman. If I thought it was a problem because I was black, I'd call up another black officer. Mm-hmm. And you ask them, has this ever happened to you? If so, mm-hmm. how did you handle the situation? Mm-hmm. And you want it to be somebody you know so that it, you, maybe it's something that you've done wrong. You know, In my book I had one chapter, what if you're the problem? I'm a very imperfect person. In one actual conversation that I got, when you got to the second phase of the Ain't It Awful, you know, the the lady that I called said, Gail, did you ever think when you called that man at home in the middle of the night and cursed him out, and then when he hung up on you, you picked up his coffee cup and threw it against the wall and broke it? Did you ever think that maybe that might have some repercussions? (laughs) 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 You know, what the guy had done was terrible. There was a... You know, this was uh, during the El Salvador, Nicaragua thing in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was, I was assigned to United States Southern Command, which has the responsibility for monitoring U.S. interests in the Central and, and South America. And uh, Nicaragua was in crisis, so I was in charge of writing up all the intelligence reports for the Washington, D.C. crowd. Mm-hmm. And so it was a 24-7 job, so... I said uh, to you know one of my coworkers, I said, I know this looks messy what I have on my desk, but I'm going to go eat dinner, and then I'm going to come back, and I had to have that report out so that when the people in Washington, D.C. got there in the morning, it was there. And so I asked people not to touch my desk, and when I came back after dinner, that guy had not only cleaned off my desk, but he'd thrown away all my notes. My goodness. Just because he didn't like me. <clears throat> wow. And so that was my reaction, which was unprofessional which meant I had to start all over again, you know, to do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just didn't like me. You know, you run into that type of thing that people don't, and you can't read your mind. You don't know whether they don't like you because you're a woman, because you're black, because you're fat. You don't know why they don't like you. You or just, just read it they sometimes. Don't. Yeah. Sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. That was only, you know, he had done nasty things like that before. He mm-hmm. gotten away with it, so apparently felt empowered. Well, you, you know, it's interesting in the chapter of faith, you say it's uh, it's also painfully apparent to me that at times I block my own blessings through ignorance or lack of faith and and, uh, and undeveloped uh, spiritual awareness. So That's you really true. took you took spiritual uh, ownership uh, of, of your life, of all of what was happening to you. You didn't play the blame game. No, because that was my fault. You know, I ended up professionally blackballed there for a few months uh, because I reacted so badly to what he had done to me. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that the best way to deal with something like that is to stay prayed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you stay prayed up and focused on the task at hand, which was providing the best intelligence report that I could on Latin America then it will turn out. And once I got that focus back, mm-hmm. that's exactly what happened. When I left, that guy was forced to apologize to me over a, yet another incident. He had gotten so used to being nasty to me. Um, they had uh, asked me, like I said, I made a comeback because I got prayed up. 
and they asked me to be basically the network anchor of that command so that you get up and basically you're a network anchor and then you have senators and congressmen and governor officials come in and you know you give these presentations to them as well as to the staff several times a week so we had some VIP visitors from Washington, D.C., so they came in for the dry run to watch me. And this guy was as nasty to me as he always was on the dry run. And uh, then what happened was the VIPs went to the boss and said, that man was horrible to that young lady. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything so unprofessional in my life. And the command, you know, had allowed him to do that to me, I think primarily because I had shot myself in the foot. Maybe some people thought I deserved to be treated that way. Mm-hmm. But somebody coming in from the outside seeing the situation said mm-hmm. no one should be allowed to be treated that way in a workplace. Wow. And so it was only because I was prayed up. I did not, uh, you know, hold any hostility toward that man. You know, I, I said, well, you know, he doesn't really know me. I don't know why he doesn't like me. But like my dad said, two things you can do about a problem, something or nothing. And all that I could do was make sure that I did nothing to him from my perspective to to bring on the hostility. As I, did when I, mm-hmm. as I did when I cursed him out and broke his coffee cup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my goodness. Well, you know, here's the thing. You're also up against, uh, from, from reading your, your, your autobiography, you're up against a timeline, uh, in a sense, in this organization known as the Navy, because you, you call it uh, an up-and-out organization. What do you mean by that? Well, if you're an officer, at certain time periods in your career, you come up for a promotion. They'll take a look at the records of everybody at your rank, and then they'll pick the people that they want to promote. And if you do not get selected, they'll give you one more opportunity the next year, and then you have to get out. And uh, if you, uh, and that means if you get out early, you know, no military retirement, you know, you're done. And what happened to me when I came up for selection to commander, that's like a lieutenant colonel in the other services, mm-hmm. I was not selected. And I I was horrified and depressed, incredibly depressed. And uh, I went to Reverend Helen and, uh, you know, I basically was crying on her shoulder in a counseling session and she let me play the ain't it awful game. And then she said, uh, you're going to get promoted. And she said, uh, you know, she said we prayed together for the best outcome for all concerned. And she said, uh, okay, is it, can they get you, can they promote you soon? I said, no, i got to wait till a year. And then she looked at me, you know, she saw how depressed I still was. And she says, uh, you have to wear your uniform, right? And I said, yeah, and I didn't know what, what she was getting at. Mm-hmm. She said, do they tell you what kind of underwear you can wear? And I said, no. So she said, when you leave here, go to Frederick's or Hollywood over at the mall and buy yourself the sexiest <laughs> underwear you can find and wear it underneath your uniform. And she said, that way you'll walk around at work all day with a big grin on your face. <laughs> so <laughs> I did go buy the, the underwear, but I never wore it because I just was too embarrassed. And the other thing I did was uh, I called up uh, the guy who was in charge of uh, – all jobs in the Navy, he was uh, Captain Drew Simpson, and he was one of my mentors. And he talked to me for an hour, and he told me not to give up. And uh, sure enough, through prayer and persistence, I still work just as hard at my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got, so Not only did I get promoted the next year, but I actually put on the insignia at the same time, if I had gotten promoted on time, 
And then they pulled me out of Hawaii 18 months early. I was hand-selected to go over and head up the support, the intelligence support for the 1988 Olympics, which involved working with the uh, South Korean government, you know, the, both the police force and the military. So all wow. of that, and, and it had to take uh, the approval. My, that had to be approved by the Secretary of Defense, so hand-selected. And uh, Captain Simpson, you know, or Drew, as I call him, said that uh, he thought that my best talents lay in providing current intelligence support. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't force the Navy to promote me. He thought I would make captain, which I did. He said, but what this will do basically is show the Navy what I could do. Mm-hmm. If I did well, and he knew I would. Absolutely amazing. Wow. And that's, that is a testament to being pre-prayed and prayed up. It really is. And you do your part. You know, you pray. And I continued working. The command I was assigned to, the, the Pacific Fleet, they told me after I get, didn't get promoted that they would keep me in the job as head, their head uh, analyst for the Soviet Navy. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most prestigious jobs you could have, which is another reason why I was surprised I wasn't selected the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened in, is that I, uh, about a few days before the promotion board uh, was scheduled to happen, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I know this was divine guidance, and I wrote a letter to the board. And what happens is they'll usually the board is a bunch of admirals, and they'll usually only spend three or four minutes on each record. And somebody from the intelligence community will get up and say, here's Gail Harris, here are all her assignments, here's what's good and here's what's bad. Mm-hmm. And the admirals vote. But when you write a letter, by law, they have to read it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a one-page letter, you know, like it was four sections, why I was writing the letter, what was good about my record, what I thought was bad about my record, and then the last part was the emotional part, why I joined the Navy. Mm -hmm. And I'm told that some of the board members cried. And uh, another one of my members, mentors, Admiral Ted Schaefer, called me up, and it tells you he wasn't on the board, so it tells you that letter got circulated around the Navy. And he was one of the ones that cried, and he told me I needed to write a magazine article for the, a Navy publication to tell people how to write letters. Mm-hmm. I didn't get around to doing that, but I got lots of calls from the blue about that letter. And the most recent was, uh, oh, like maybe about five or six years ago, one of my girlfriends called me up. She had get, not gotten promoted and had followed my advice and had gotten picked up the next year. So she said a young man called her up and asked if he could see her. He had not gotten promoted, and he was upset and wanted her advice. And so Sarah was being a little long-winded, hopefully not like I am now. And she said, yeah, listen to the story. There's a relevance. And so at the end of her conversation with the young man, uh, she said, have you considered writing a letter to the board? He said, yeah, I have. My boss gave me a letter he used, and he handed the letter. It was my letter. Wow, so your letter became the template. It did. Isn't that something? To the best of my knowledge, everybody that followed that formula and that letter got promoted the second time around, which is very, very rare. Wow. Very, very. I don't know what the percentages are, but I bet you it's only something like 5 to 10% of people who are not selected the first time do not make it the second. That's amazing. So here we are now moving forward. You are... 
talking about in the book, uh, which I think a lot of people forgot about, I, I do remember, and that is what's known as the Forgotten War. Right. Uh, Desert Fox, I believe that's, was that under the, that was under the Clinton administration, yes? It was under the Clinton administration. What most people don't realize is that the first Gulf War never ended. And, and it never ended because Saddam Hussein was refused to abide by all of the UN sanctions. So the United States, along with its UN coalition partners, conducted military operations every single day. Mm. And I, I got some statistics. Somehow I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, like, for instance, in uh, 1993, they conducted strikes, you know, and, and including uh, 44 cruise missiles against a nuclear-related facility. In 1993, again, they struck the Iraqi intelligence uh, headquarters. In 1994, when Saddam put uh, troops again on the Kuwaiti border, the, the U.S. deployed over 28,000 troops and 200 additional aircraft. Uh, Desert Fox in 1999, 1998 came by when Saddam threw the U.N. inspectors out. Mm -hmm. And uh, Clinton uh, authorized uh, strikes at uh, facilities associated with WMD and Iraq's command and control network. And on just the first day of that operation, 280 cruise missiles were fired, almost as many as was used in the entire first Gulf War. Wow. So, so what, the reason why I tell those stories, and thanks for asking the questions, is mm -hmm. that you know the Bush administration had a lot of criticism for going to war, uh, and people forgot we were still at war. Mm -hmm. It never ended. Yeah, yeah. And so when when I give my talks, I tell people I said what you need to look at. I said I don't tell you what to think. I just tell you to make sure you have all of your facts to the conclusion you're working on. And I ask mm -hmm. the question: Was it? Faulty policy or faulty execution? Mm -hmm. Under the Clinton administration, basically, uh, he managed to keep Hussein neutralized and from reconstituting uh, his WMD, although he was constantly trying. Mm -hmm. And a lot of military people thought one of the huge effort, because they always kept at least one carrier strike group in the Persian Gulf and one marine amphibious ready group. So a large number of forces large for the entire Chinese decade. And a lot of military people thought, oh, doggone it, we should have taken him out during the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of that type of mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think I the question that should have been asked uh, by the Bush administration, and perhaps it was, had uh, Clinton's policies during the 90s basically neutralized Saddam Hussein? Had he been neutralized? So that we really need to go in and take him out. So in a sense, the Bush administration used 9-11 uh, for many reasons, and one was, of, of course, to neutralize Saddam Hussein, period, to basically... Right, to get rid of him. I think they're thinking we can't afford to keep all of this military effort that we've had <laughs> going on. We need to divert the forces... So let us take us let's take him out because he's still not doing what he needs to be doing. Right. And so I I think I weigh in on the side of faulty execution because what happened was once they went in there and took him out uh, was that we destroyed the Iraqi infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and, you know the the government and the military went away as opposed to allowing the existing structure to stay. 
and making sure uh, that uh, the Iraq still had their the Iraqis still had their infrastructure. Now, of course, uh, during this process, uh, you became uh, a leading authority uh, on intelligence in Iraq. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, it's considering my background academically was comparative communism, and you know, I studied a lot about European history. I was in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, you were in Japan. You know, you were you were in Spain. You were in all these places. And you end up in Iraq, out of all places. And heck, man, that's where you really blossom. It, it was, you know, because thank heavens the Iraqis used a lot of Soviet equipment. So I understood uh, a lot of what their aircraft and their, you know, surface-to-air missile systems, air defense and whatnot, what they could do. I just had to learn where the Iraqi military forces were operated, what were their normal behavior patterns. Because the thing that intelligence types had to do, uh, like, for instance, uh, oh, I think it was yesterday, the Chinese uh, took their first aircraft carrier to sea. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, floating it around, you know, beating the chest. Look what we had! What a neat toy! And so the big debate right now is: is China gonna? Is this the first of many aircraft carriers? Are they gonna basically say that nobody can operate in the South China Sea or East China Sea? Uh, the intelligence community, I'm sure, is working to tell our national security advisors what they think, and based on what we think they're doing affects what we think the size of our military should be. Mm-hmm. And on a daily basis, at the height of the Cold War, uh, you know, you'd see things happening like, I remember one time uh, when I was in that second assignment working in the 7th Fleet newsroom, and uh, one of our U.S. aircraft, it was a P-3, the type of a long-range land-based aircraft, uh, the type that I had been in my first job, crashed off the Soviet coast. Mm-hmm. The decision I had to make right away when I saw Soviet, the Soviet Union moving, moving naval and air forces toward that crash site, are they going to capture, if any of the men, are they going to capture them alive and throw them in prison, or are they going to rescue them? Mm-hmm. My call was that I thought they were going to rescue them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. And it's not uncommon that as a very young intelligence officer, you have to make those kind of decisions. When you see uh, people, you know, potential enemies moving their military forces, are they exercising? Or are they getting ready to do something ugly? Wow. I remember when Saddam moved his military forces before the start of the first Gulf War. It was like a Friday, and I, uh, the National Security Agency put out like a daily newspaper. And I saw, you know, I didn't necessarily have to follow what was happening in Iraq. After all, I was in Spain. And I saw that Saddam had moved his forces on the border with Kuwait. And I knew my boss was going to be looking at that same newspaper later. So I remember I put I put this really great intelligence analysis on that article. I put, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, military, no military person wants to hear the words or read the words, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so because... right then I didn't know how how far it was going to go but I knew this could be the beginning of ugly ops it, if uh, we depending on how big our response was because mm-hmm. it it could very well have been that if we had moved our chess pieces of our military forces 
one way that it would have discouraged Saddam from uh, from going further. You know, speaking of Saddam, this you know here is a guy. You were talking earlier about you know like like China um, uh, and and their their first uh, ship, you know, and and beating their chest. Saddam was really a master at posturing. He was. Uh, but I mean, he also went a step further in, in, in actually sponsoring the assassination attempt on President Bush, and you guys caught that. Yeah, we did. It was so funny. I didn't think I'd get involved in that because at that period in time, uh, we'd had a change. I was at uh, Naval Forces Central Command. That's the naval component component of the Central Command, the command that's in charge of our wars in the Iraq and Afghanistan, and. Uh, you got to change of command, and the boss did, didn't like me, and basically I had nothing to do. And so somebody, the powers that be, I prayed as usual, you know, just deep in my prayer life. And out of the blue, I was asked to, uh, called up by the, the job assignments people and said, uh, would you like to go and fill in as the acting military attache for Egypt? The guy wow. who was in it was getting out, and it takes it was a two year training program for his replacement. They said even shortening up his training program there's going to be a four or five month gap and they said uh, you were hand selected out of everybody in the Navy to go do this and you know and then I remember when he was telling me that you know I had been so down because I'd been marginalized at work mm-hmm. and, I, and I mentioned this in the book, my ego started. You know, puffing up, he said, hand selected. And he said, oh, by the way, the embassy turned you down. They didn't think a woman, uh, you know, in that part of the world, that the military attaches and military men in that part of the world would not would not deal with a woman in that job. And the head of naval intelligence told the, the embassy that you take her or you won't get anybody. Wow. And so while I was over there doing that, and I will tell you that uh, the embassy was wrong. I have never, ever been treated better in my entire military career. Mm. But while I was there, that happened. Uh, you know, the word came out that uh, Saddam had tried to, to kill, you know, the first President Bush. And uh, they were going to move in. They wanted to move in another aircraft carrier to join the one that, that they always kept there. It was the Theodore Roosevelt. It was in the Mediterranean. And part of my responsibilities were getting diplomatic approval for U.S. naval vessels to come to the Suez Canal as well as paying for it. And you needed 30 days' notice in order to get a nuclear-powered uh, ship through that. I was told the reason for that, that uh, President then-President Mubarak was on vacation at some estate overlooking the uh, the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, and he sees some U.S. aircraft carrier, nuclear-powered thing floating by. He's going, "Wow!" Nobody <laughs> told me about that. Because a lot of people in the world, they they don't want nuclear vessels by them because they think they're going to get sick or something. Mm-hmm. And so because of that incident, you had to get approval. So when I found out, I found out that they were going to do that, that they were moving the Theodore Roosevelt to the Suez Canal. I was watching CNN. So I called up the you know, Naval Forces Central Command. I was. I called up Naval Forces Central Command, their head of operations, and started screaming and yelling and cursing at him. That was bad, Gail, coming out. Thank heavens, <laughs> this guy. This guy normally had a worse temper than I did. I was lucky. He started laughing. He said, "Ah, oh, for crying out, Gail." He said, "Forget it." He said, "I'm the guy that's going to be in charge of it." And I didn't find out about it either until watching CNN. Oh wow! And so he said, "Do what you can." Uh, so I did, and I was able to get approval in three days, and I was told that's what got me promoted to captain. And my favorite story from that time 
was I had been spending a lot of time talking with the Theodore Roosevelt that was as it was transiting, and mm-hmm. I had to go to some big old diplomatic function, so I was in my sh- hotel room taking a shower, and the phone rang, and it was the Theodore Roosevelt. They said, hey, Gail, we're, we're just outside the Suez Canal, and have we got permission yet? I said, oh, guys, I said, back off. I said, you can't, whatever distance it is that you can go without being seen from shore, please do that. I said, I'll probably have it for you in a few hours, but I don't have it right now. Wow. And, and, and then when I hung up the phone, I realized I'd just done a major diplomatic thing in the nude. That is amazing. In the nude. Yeah, I was glad it wasn't a video phone. <laughs> there I am, no clothes on, dripping water, talking to the, you know, the heavies on on the aircraft carrier. Well, you know, a lot of amazing things have been done in the nude, you know. So <laughs> this, this is the stuff that movies are made of, you know. Exactly. Uh, Except yeah. they probably had me played instead of played by somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, they probably have like a young Vanessa Williams or somebody. There you go. There you go. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. What's that what's that gal uh, who played in Dream Girls? She would be perfect for you. She Oh Jennifer Hudson? Jennifer Hudson. Oh, Beyonce or Beyonce, yeah. Or Beyonce, there you go. That's right. That's right. That will be the the memorable scene in the movie. Uh, 